This will not be the last pandemic we face. If the world doesn't understand that we have got to come together internationally to fight this, we're going to be in dire straits. Hello everyone and welcome to our first episode after the summer break. My name is Christopher Starke and you are listening to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. We hope all of you had a nice summer vacation despite these challenging global circumstances these days. In today's episode, Niels Kürbis and I interviewed Michael Hirschman. Michael is one of the founders of Transparency International and the Fairfax Group. He also served as an advisor on countless ethics committees and oversight bodies. In the interview, Michael reflects on more than 40 years in anti-corruption. We talk about the founding period of TI, the link between corruption and populism, and especially corruption in the world of sports. In the end, we also discuss the role of today's athletes in the fight for social justice in the United States. Have fun and enjoy the episode. Great. So thanks a lot for taking the time, Michael. Um, I mean, you, your entire life you've been active in anti-corruption. I mean, it's a, a list too long to mention here now. Um, I mean, you were already in the uh, senior staff investigator for the Senate Watergate Committee. And you were also in the early 90s involved, actually one of the co-founders of Transparency International. So if you actually could, it was the early 80s, early uh, 80s, even okay. that's really, so, really going to date me. <laughs> could you maybe kind of take us back to those times and walk us through what what made you found Transparency International and sort of how you came up with that idea and really trying to, to walk the listeners through the, the process of that? Well, professionally, I have been involved in uh, the business world. Uh, government, and the NGO community uh, for much of my life. In my early career, I spent 15 years in, in government service, including the military, and obviously primarily here in the United States when I say government service. But I started my career in government uh, quite by accident in the um, early 1970s, working on police corruption issues in New York City. Uh, when I returned from the military from overseas, I got recruited by um, an organization called the New York City Department of Investigation, which was part of the mayor's office. And they had a very large police corruption scandal going on at the time. It, it became the subject of a, of a well-known film called Serpico. I know and that movie, yes. Yeah. So that was my first really exposure as a young man to the world of, of corruption. And um, it wasn't long after my work in New York City that I was recruited, as you mentioned, to work on the Senate Watergate Committee. This brought an entirely uh, different perspective to me because going from working on police corruption cases and corruption in the criminal justice system to politics was a sea change for me. I was not familiar with politics. In fact, when I was asked to join the Senate Watergate Committee, 
I drove down from New York to Washington, D.C., and I had to ask someone where the Senate office building was. Really had no clue. However, that work and the Senate Watergate Committee was so essential to our country and to changing the way things were done in our country, including uh, campaign finance reform, including um, uh, ethics oversight in government, including whistleblower legislation, which we're still talking about, whistleblower protection and issues like that. And I stayed in Washington after the Senate Watergate Committee, after the resignation of the President of the United States, Richard Nixon, and worked uh, both in Congress and in the executive branch. But it wasn't until about 1978, 79, when I was appointed as the um, Deputy Auditor General for the Agency for International Development Aid that I began to see the impact that corruption had overseas in what we called at that time the third world. Uh, I'm referring to undeveloped countries, southern countries, as some uh, say now. And my responsibilities was to try to ensure that the multilateral funding, the billions of dollars that aid was giving to these less developed countries to help in their education programs and their medical field and, and elsewhere infrastructure to make sure that it was being used effectively and efficiently and that we were not uh, finding it subject to fraud and corruption. Well, it was an eye opener. I traveled around the world, Africa, Asia, uh, Latin America, and I was stunned by the le level of, of corruption and misconduct. I was stunned to see monies coming not only from the United States, but from other bilateral and multilateral aid pro programs into countries uh, and seeing absolutely no progress being made. Where, where a medical clinic was supposed to be, there was a hole in the ground and the money was going into the, the pockets of corrupt officials. The people were suffering terribly. So not long after my service with AID, I was approached by a colleague of mine who was a former attorney general and also former foreign minister of Bangladesh. And he said, look, there's a small group of people that are very frustrated by the level of corruption in international development, and no one's doing anything about it. I mean, the topic essentially is forbidden to be discussed in the World Bank. Very little is being done in the United Nations. We have to do something to bring this issue of corruption out of the closet and into the international community so that we can begin to, to address it. And so Kamal Hussein, who was the uh, former Attorney General and the Foreign Minister of, of Bangladesh, introduced me to Peter Eichen. And the three of us, along with one or two other people, in 1980, began meeting. Now, we all had our own jobs. Uh, Peter, at the time, was with World Bank uh, in um, East Africa. 
uh, I had left government. I had my own company. And so we would have to meet uh, at a time and place that was convenient to all of us, despite our, our busy schedules. And so in 1980, we began meeting once, twice, maybe three times a year, discussing how we could do something to combat corruption. And finally, in 1983, we decided to form an organization. We, none of us had experience in nonprofit world, non-governmental organizations. But we had looked at others that we thought could serve as a model, like Amnesty International, which obviously dealt with human rights. And we were impressed by their ability to bring attention to the issue on a, on a global uh, uh, perspective, from a global perspective. And so in 1983, we decided to form an NGO. We argued long and hard about the name, what to call it. I wanted to call it Integrity International. And finally, we settled on the name Transparency International in 1983. And Peter Eigen said, look, if you locate Transparency International in Berlin, I will take a sabbatical from the World Bank. I have a home in Berlin, and I'll get this operation up and running. That's the reason it's in Berlin. No other reason than the fact that Peter Eigen had a home there. At the beginning, it was very, very difficult. No one really thought we could succeed. We had virtually no funding. But at the time, there was a, a German aid organization called the Deutsche Gesellschaft für Zusammenarbeit. The, the name has changed now. Yeah. Uh, and there was a gentleman who was running it who said, look, if you're going to succeed, you need a product. And if you can come up with a product, we will give you some seed funding. Uh, at the time, uh, Peter was running it out of his house. I formed the U.S. chapter and running it out of my house, um, a U.S. chapter of Transparency International. And we talked and we came up with an idea of writing what we called a source book of best practices. Uh, because there wasn't any at that time. And each of the members of our small group, which kept expanding to include others, wrote a chapter. I wrote a chapter on the role of ombudsman, for example. And we published it. And it really caught the attention of multinational and bilateral organizations. Uh, the World Bank uh, liked it, and they funded the publication of it in a number of different languages. And we caught a wave, if you will, a wave of frustration on the part of people that couldn't get anyone to focus on issues of corruption, particularly as it affected people in, in uh, poverty-stricken uh, countries. One of the best things we did is decided, like Amnesty International, to have chapters. And now we have chapters around the entire world. And uh, Transparency International itself has reformed over the years. What I mean by that, at the beginning, we were solely focused on what we called grand corruption. That is the, the corruption that had the most adverse impact on people living in uh, in the southern uh, hemisphere, people that 
were the victims of, of corruption and abuse. In later years, including recently, we have begun to understand the impact that corruption has on areas of environmental concern, uh, human rights, uh, and other areas. So we're very active in promoting uh, anti-corruption, uh, not only in the business sector and in, in, the, um, in the government sector, but in areas um, in which corruption plays a, a large role, whether it be protecting uh, journalists or whistleblowers, or whether it be fighting for um, environmental um, standards uh, worldwide. Uh, look, I never would have believed back in 19... 83. I don't think any of us, Peter Eigen, myself, Kamal Hussein, and others, we never would have really believed at that time that we would have actually succeeded in, um, in becoming really what is, I think, undisputably the world's uh, most influential organization in this area of, of anti-corruption. Well, that's very interesting. And uh, I was wondering, are you, are you still in touch with the two other founders, Peter and Kamal? Oh, I am. And I'm still obviously still very active. So we hold Transparency International holds um, every two years the International Anti-Corruption Conference, which is the largest uh, anti-corruption conference in the world. And, and we're, we're holding it virtually this year for the first time in South Korea in December. I'm on the board of that um, International Anti-Corruption Conference Committee and still get to enjoy the, uh, the company of uh, many of the uh, original founders. And uh, if I have my math right, you look now back on 40 years in anti-corruption. How would you say the community, the anti-corruption community in general has changed over these decades? And are we moving in a, in a good direction? What, what would you say? Well, we are moving in a good direction. Look, I'm not naive. We'll never eliminate corruption from the world. Um, but we are in a position, a very strong position, to help control co corruption and reduce corruption. And I, I mean, today you can't go to an international event or meeting, whether it's a G7 or you know, the G12, whatever the event, whether it's sponsored by the World Bank, the IMF, whether it's sponsored by the United Nations, OECD, wherever it is in the world, on the agenda will be the issue of corruption. And this was our original intent and purpose to get it on the agenda of every major Uh, uh, meeting every major opportunity we could find. Have we made progress? Absolutely. In the corporate sector, multinationals, particularly the, particularly the large multinationals that are registered uh, on the stock exchange, have all implemented compliance programs and governance programs. Does that mean that they, they have eliminated corruption within their, their organizations? No. And why? Because it's not possible. When you have 400,000 employees working around the world in 80 different countries, some of them very high-risk countries, uh, someone will go off the reservation. But we've managed to reduce, the, reduce events of what I call uh, systematic corruption 
in in corporations, like we found in Siemens uh, back in the uh, in the two thousand six two thousand seven timeframe, that corruption was systematic within the in the company. So we we've we've seen a sea change with regard to these large companies. Of course. The same doesn't apply to, to non-public companies. Uh, they don't have the same rules or regulations they must fire, f- follow. And if you look at a country like China, China has had a, a, a very strong domestic anti-corruption program for the last, oh gosh, I guess going on seven or eight years, maybe 10 years. Uh, but they, not, they have not really overseen their companies doing business outside of China and controls uh, the corruption that is inherent in, in their business in, in places like Africa and, and Latin America. One of the reasons, however, on a global scale, whether it's government corruption or whether it's private sector corruption, that we have been uh, successful is that the international law enforcement community and in large part, the financial community, I'm talking now about the financial institutions, the banks, have come together through strong anti-money laundering programs. And it's much more difficult for the corrupt, uh, particularly the higher level corrupt, uh, what I, I call the grand corruption, to hide and to use their money today. It's getting far, far more difficult. So um, that has been uh, a great success. And that's not to say that there aren't still jurisdictions in the world where the banking industry uh, is a safe haven uh, for money laundering. But every year that goes by, this safe haven gets smaller and smaller. And I'm I'm convinced we'll um, eliminate safe havens uh, within the next 10 years. Now, where have we kind of had a setback or failed, if you will? The growth of populism in some countries, including my own, in this Trump administration, has proven a setback to values, uh, to ethics, and to democracy. And we have seen the growth of this populism in in other countries outside the United States, where uh, civil rights, are being um, hampered, where uh, journalists are being uh, harassed, sometimes injured, sometimes killed. We've had incidents in, in Transparency International, actually, where some of our people have been subject to threats and have been either injured or, or killed. Um, so we're battling this um, rise in, in populism which essentially um, has allowed uh, corruption to, to gain a, a foothold in, in these countries because of the authoritarian leadership that doesn't, doesn't think that the drive for ethics and values and anti-corruption is important. That's so interesting that you mention populism as a, as a grave problem of our times, and especially because from especially from the U.S. context and the Brazilian context, a lot of those populist leaders also run their campaigns on issues of corruption. This whole drain the swamp and in uh, in in Brazil it was quite similar. 
How do you think populism and corruption are related to each other? Well, authoritarian regimes, regardless of where they are, are primarily in a focus on their own self-survival and propagating their own issues their own, that, that benefit themselves. And while these on face, while many of these regimes, which are highly nationalistic, seem to be very pro-law enforcement, very pro-enforcement, it's only where it serves their benefit. Uh, where it, it might embarrass them or might expose the level of ethics violations or corruption that they're involved in, they don't want to hear about enforcement. So it's what I call selective enforcement. Yeah, that's, that's quite interesting. It um, reminds me of a quote that says, uh, for my friends, everything, for my enemies, the law. <laughs> You know, basically very selectively applying also anti-corruption standards, um, depending on, well, who's affected by it, right? Um, you know, which kind of shows that sometimes the word corruption, which I think you have helped together, obviously with Transparency International, to put it on the map, can at times also be abused for political purposes. In, in the current climate, what do you think helps uh, against populists abusing corruption in that way? Well, I think that, that people are beginning to realize, and I sincerely hope that's the case in my own country, that um, authoritarian leaders are, are more self-serving than public serving. Uh, we, we're starting to see a swing here, and I'm hoping that we're going to see the same elsewhere. People are, you know, people have been convinced in some of these countries that have had populist uprisings, if we will, that nationalism is the answer to all of their concerns, whether it is improvement in the economy, whether it's safety or security, or whether it, whatever it might be. And they're learning the hard way that that is not indeed the case that uh, authoritarianism uh, spurred on by populism, nationalism, uh, takes us back to a place uh, before uh, globalism where we were very insular. And this COVID crisis is a very, very good example. Uh, this will not be the, the, the last pandemic we face. If the world doesn't understand that we have got to come together internationally to fight this. We're going to be in dire straits. I mean, even today, even right now, uh, many countries that are trying to develop a vaccine for COVID are doing it in an insular fashion, without cooperation, without coordination. And this might very well lead to further estrangement if it turns out that a country is only going to use a, uh, a vaccine, a successful vaccine, to help their own people. Look, we can't turn our back on globalization. You know, when, when someone, well, this, is, this is a good example, when someone sneezes in China, we catch a cold here. 
Yeah, and in that way, I think the the pandemic has shown globally, but also within nations, how interdependent we are. Right? Like how so dependent? We are Absolutely, yeah, yeah. The I mean, given our environmental crisis issues, given our supply chain issues, given our um, our water crisis issues, if we don't work together as as a global as global citizens. Uh, we're going to suffer in the long run. Um, what, what I was wondering also, and Niels referred to it briefly, is that corruption itself is such a strong term and it's, it can be abused, for example, for allegations against political opponents, but it's often claimed that it's also used by companies for like uh, ethics washing or something like this. Um, have you ever been approached by a dubious um, let's say, committee that, that wanted to, to use you in order to make them appear to be more ethical? Oh, yes. Yes, it, it, it actually has happened on a number of occasions. And I've also, been, um, I've also been threatened during the course of corruption investigations. Um, I did a very large corruption investigation in India uh, during the... Um, the time of when Rajiv Gandhi was the, the prime minister. And I was actually hired to do that by the then finance minister of India, VP Singh. As soon as the corruption investigation began knocking at the door, if you will, of the prime minister and his own family, things turned rather nasty. Uh, VP Singh was removed from office, although he was... Uh, a very influential member of the Congress party at the time. And so he wasn't removed from government, but I was offered um, quite a bit of money to stop my investigation. And, um, and when I refused, um, they threatened to kill me. This was known as the Beaufort scandal and it led to VP Singh running for prime minister against Rajiv Gandhi. And in fact, on, a uh, uh, corruption, anti-corruption platform, and Rajiv Gandhi lost that election. Unfortunately, he obviously was assassinated not long thereafter. Corruption is evil, and there's often, I mean, it's a balance. Siemens, when they asked me to come in and help them reform Siemens during the height of their scandal, I had to demand, uh, I had to demand from them certain um, guarantees that my work would not be interfered with, that I would have full access to all records and all personnel. At the time, there was a, uh, a new CEO who agreed with this, although the powerful chairman of Siemens at that time, uh, I don't think agreed with it, but I was able to do my work. We were able to reform Siemens and Siemens uh, kind of became a model for the industry. Uh, in terms of its governance and compliance program. So I have to be very, very careful since I wear so many hats in the NGO community and in the um, private business community as to what I do and who I do it for. Do you have like a, an internal checklist how to choose those you do and those you, you don't? It's not so much as a, a checklist as is an instinct. I mean, I was, I was approached 
I've been approached by, by people of questionable um, backgrounds, um, powerful people who have dangled a lot of money in front of me. But frankly, you know, my reputation is far more important to me than the money. And as you know, it, it takes a lifetime to build a reputation, but you could lose it in a matter of seconds in today's media environment. Absolutely. I, I think this is a, a nice segue into uh, the second main well, area that we want to talk to you about. Namely, you've also served on the Independent Governance Committee of the FIFA, uh, an organization that is also well-known, sometimes for the wrong reasons. Um, could you maybe shum, uh, share some of your experiences from working on that committee, some of the insights you've gained, and maybe something that also surprised you? Well, speaking about surprising me, it was an eye-opener for me. I'm a sports fanatic. I love sports, uh, baseball, football, both European football and American football, soccer. I played sports throughout my life. My kids have played sports, but I knew nothing about the business of sports, absolutely nothing. So when I got a call in about, I think it was about 2012 from Mark Piaf, uh, who was a, a, a longtime colleague and friend. We'd worked together uh, on boards, International uh, Anti-Corruption Academy and uh, boards. He asked if I would join him in uh, this effort to help reform uh, FIFA. And I said, yes. I mean, I, I high respect for Mark. Uh, he is really, Mark is not only a mentor, but uh, he is, in my judgment, one of the real shining lights in the anti-corruption movement and has been for many, many years. So <clears throat> when we began as this independent committee, I started to realize, oh my gosh, sports is really a big business. I learned uh, shockingly, that FIFA had billions of dollars in the bank and was being run like a corner candy store with really no oversight, very little business, good business principles. And I began thinking, oh, is this the world of sports? Have we ignored the governance and compliance in worldwide sports all this time? simply because we've enjoyed watching it on television or going to the stadiums and watching it and thinking that, oh my gosh, th this is a a an activity that really is pure. Well, what a shock. <laughs> this, reminds me, uh, <laughs> this reminds me of the opening quote, I think, by the John Oliver episode, who, who calls uh, it the sausage principle. Um, if you love something, you don't want to know how it's made. And uh, he applies it also to the, to the, to the Soccer World Cup. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you really don't want to know what's in it. <laughs> so um, we proceeded to build a set of principles, values, and ethics, sta ethical standards for FIFA. And um, over time, we ran into pushback, which is highly unusual because... When I help companies that have been involved in scandals, whether it's Walmart or SNC-Lavalin in Canada, 
they know they have no choice but to reform. They're under investigation by the authorities. Frankly, their business, their very existence is in danger. So they have no problem accepting recommendations for best practices. Obviously, you have to be culturally sensitive and make sure that you're not recommending something that is going to essentially end their business because it's just not achievable. But look, good standards and business practice today, they're well known. No one is going to argue with the fact that you need an anti-bribery policy, that you need a robust whistleblower program, and on and on and on. Well, in FIFA's case, it was a very, it was an old boy network. Uh, FIFA started 100 years ago uh, with a group of volunteers that got together and said, look, we need to standardize the regulations and rules on the pitch. Then as time went on and the 1990s came into, into being and media money started flowing into FIFA, all of these volunteers that sat at what they call at that time the EXCO, the executive committee, now they call it the council, began thinking, oh my gosh, what's in it for me? You know, we're tons of money flowing in from media rights and, and no women in the management of FIFA or on the executive committee, not one woman in the organization, all old time, uh, uh, folks who have been involved in the world of soccer uh, from a uh, either a player standpoint or a business standpoint. And they all decided we're going to make money out of this. And when I say they all, 90% of them decided it's time for us. And so the corruption um, began to grow within this, this organization, unchecked, unsupervised, because no one had super, uh, there was no external supervision, no inter independent observation. And this is not only FIFA. It was all of the organizations, whether it was rugby or cricket or, or Major League Baseball. Essentially, these organizations had a theme. All had a, a, a similar theme. We're sports. We do not accept, nor do we welcome, any government oversight or interference in our operations. We know best in our industry, our industry of sports. And if something is wrong, we can fix it. Well, let me tell you, that doesn't work. And so we got pushback for the first time in my professional history in dealing with reform. They would not accept some of our recommendations. Uh, this is under the regime of, of Seth Blatter, uh, the emperor, if you will. <laughs> we recommended, for example, term limits. Limits? Oh no, no, no. We, you know, we can't have term limits. The exco wouldn't agree to that. I mean, he would say to us, "Oh, I, I agree with you," but the exco wouldn't agree. Of course, we knew that he controlled the exco because he controlled the purse strings. Not only did he pay them. Uh, an exorbitant amount of money to attend meetings, but he would put them on committees where they could make additional money. And I'm talking about hundreds and hundreds of thousands of euros for each EXCO member. 
no one was going to go up against the power of bladder. We recommended compensation transparency. You know, you have to disclose how much you're making as the president, the secretary general, the ex-co members. Term limits, composition transparency, this is a no-brainer. No, we can't, you know, we can't do that. The ex-co won't accept that. Well, we resigned. We left. We, we felt that if we couldn't get them to listen to us, then for our own sake, it was better if we just stopped. And so we stopped. And then six, seven months later, uh, the indictments came down in the Eastern District of New York, 44 people, the raids on the hotel in, uh, in Zurich, and their world started to come apart, in large part because they wouldn't listen. They were trying to protect their own interests. That's super interesting, uh, Michael. I have two follow-up questions on that. The first one is, how is it to meet people who, I mean, probably you've met many throughout your life that have been accused and later charged with severe forms of corruption? Is there something particular that you'd pick up on? And then the second question sort of relates back to the FIFA. Do you think that the reason for not accepting those recommendations um, partially lies in the fact that FIFA pretty much has a monopoly over international football or soccer? Well, yeah, they, they saw reform as a threat to their own personal interests and to the monopoly they exert over the sport. Absolutely correct. Your first question is kind of what is the profile of a corrupt individual? And it varies. There are some people who are very smart, uh, very accomplished, but can't survive without taking risks. And so they engage in crime and corruption because it gives them a sense of excitement, if you will, believe it or not. These, these are often what I call career cr criminals. They get a rush from conning someone or bribing someone or taking a bribe, even they, though they may not have to. I mean, I've seen people that, that, that are very wealthy uh, and don't need the money take a bribe. Uh, you know, I'll talk a little bit about my involvement in Malaysia and the 1MDB scandal is a very good example of this. Then there are other people, it's in part because of culture. So one time I had the opportunity to interview a former minister of a government of a, a, a nation in Africa, who actually is one of the few who got caught taking bribes and was jailed. It doesn't happen often, uh, but I guess his luck ran out. And I got to interview him, and I said to him, "What you know? Tell me a little bit about what motivated you to begin taking these millions of dollars in in bribes." He says, "Well, Mr. Hirschman, you have to understand. I come from a very small village. We our village has nothing. You know, we have some cattle, we grow some crops, but I have an obligation." as I become wealthier and more powerful in government to help my, my family and the villages. And I said to him, well, 
Let me ask you, having a, a million dollar condominium in Paris, how exactly is that helping your villages? Are, are they allowed to stay there? He says, no, no, I would never. I said, and, and putting your children in uh, very expensive private schools in uh, Switzerland, how does, that, how does that help your village? So the, he rationalizes. And that's, that's another characteristic of yeah. people who get involved in corruption. They characterize it. My, it's my time. I deserve this. Some sense of entitlement, right? A sense of entitlement, exactly. And I also had one follow-up question on, on FIFA, maybe to go back a little bit, is after, after its climax in, in 2015 and 2016 and Blatter's and resignation, there was a lot of hope that now there is actual reform coming out of FIFA. And now, I think just two months ago, there were new allegations against the Infantino. And I think the Swiss prosecution is still investigating him. So do you think something has changed after all over at least the last four or five years, or do you think it's more of the same? So, so I think a lot has changed for the good in FIFA, but there's still that culture. And culture takes a lot longer to change than rules and regulations take to change. I think that the Swiss government has acted shamefully in this entire uh, FIFA episode. It shouldn't have been the United States that took the lead in exposing FIFA. It should have been the Swiss government. And even today, after so many years, we're talking about eight or nine years having gone by, the Swiss government has not taken effective action against FIFA, nothing. And now we learn that Mr. Infantino had some sort of secret meetings with the prosecutor. And we don't have the, there's still no transparency here. We still don't know, although the, tr the prosecutor's now gone, he had to resign. We don't know what those meetings were about. And the Swiss government always falls back on the same reaction to all of this. Oh, these things take time. Well, the Swiss government hopes that time will result in forgetfulness. Uh, they didn't want to go after FIFA because there are 50 sports organizations headquartered in Switzerland. This is a source of pride to Switzerland, and it's a source of revenue to Switzerland. And so they're more interested in preserving their, uh, their wealth and preserving, the, preserving their image as a place to do business than they are in correcting wrongdoing. Now, I'll probably be banned from Switzerland for having, having said that, but it's the truth. I'm very, I think they have acted shamefully in regard to this uh, FIFA investigation and scandal. Yeah, very interesting to, to get your take on this. And another thing, um, I mean, we had scheduled this uh, interview for us for some time now. I'm glad we do it today after all that happened over the last weeks in, in U.S. sports, because Maybe a point not directly related to corruption, but what's, what's happening in, in U.S. sports over the last weeks is that athletes, especially from the NBA, were very active using their voices, their platform for social justice in, in the U.S. Um, do you feel like sports in general become increasingly more politicized? And what do you think the, the role of single athletes are in this whole process? So 
people have asked me, why is it impor so important to clean up sports in the first place? And I did a TED talk on this subject. Which, which we're going to link to. It's a great talk. We listen to it. So our youth look towards athletes, professional athletes, as models for them. And they have tremendous influence on our society, uh, on youth, young people, and even on ad adults. So when a sports figure is accused of doping or match fixing or uh, sexual abuse, it really has an impact on the mindset of the most impressionable, impressionable segment of our society, the children. Conversely, they're standing up for what's right also now sends a very strong message, more strong than any politician. When Kobe Bryant gets up, who, and he has hundreds of millions of followers, and, and people, children and young people idolize him. When he stands up and makes a political statement about what's happening today, it means much more than what Joe Biden is saying or Donald Trump is saying. So I'm very happy to see sports figures taking a stand today and coming out publicly. And I don't care what profession you're in. The fact that you work in a business or are an athlete does not take away your right to speak. It's a basic human right. And so if they want to take, if they want to kneel during the national anthem, that's their right to do so. Um, we are approaching the, the end of the podcast. We are, we're very grateful for, for your time. Uh, we usually ask our guests, um, especially when they have so much experience in the field of anti-corruption for a pick of the podcast. So what is a book, a paper, a movie, a song, that relates to corruption that you would recommend our listeners. Okay, so I am very, very bad at remembering the name of movies and books, but there is a movie that I'm sure you'll recognize that was made in South Korea and won the Academy Award. And it was a movie about Parasite. poverty. About, yeah, exactly. Parasite, yeah, yeah, that's a great um, We're going to play that movie during the International Anti-Corruption Conference in December because that movie is so impactful and tells such a, a vital story about right and wrong. And when you boil down the issue of corruption, that really is what it's about, right and wrong. I mean, I hope that one day I've done over the years a lot of work in, in Mexico. And Mexico has deep pockets of corruption. And, and one of the most corrupt are the uh, traffic police, the motorcycle police in Mexico. If you get stopped, um, you better reach into your pocket. I mean, you can take a ticket if you want. But um, if you want to get out of there quickly and cleanly, say cleanly in between, they're looking for a payoff. And it happened to me, and I took the ticket. But I thought to myself, 
we won't be successful in places like this until a father and son in Mexico are driving down the street, are pulled over by a Mexican police officer on a motorcycle, where demand is uh, demand for a bribe is is given, and the child says, "Daddy, don't do it. It's not right." We also won't be successful in our fight against corruption until government leaders and business leaders have a program of values and ethics because they believe it's the right thing, not because they have to do it because of laws, rules, and regulations. I, I think, Michael, that's a, a perfect way to, to end this um, podcast because we are sort of going full circle. You, you started off the interview with explaining how your work in police corruption in New York was sort of the beginning of all of this. And now we're going back to police corruption, this time maybe in another country, but nonetheless showing maybe also the importance of experienceable forms of corruption, how much they shape beliefs and expectations and conceptions of fairness, right? So I think this was very insightful. We are very grateful for your time and your insights. And on behalf of all the listeners, thank you very much. Well, I'm happy to have been here. I thank you very much for the invitation. I appreciate the work you all are doing. Uh, I appreciate your service to the world. Thank you. Thank you so much, Michael. Thanks. That's it already. Thanks for listening. Before we wrap up, though, some quick info about the episode. First of all, keep your suggestions for potential kickback guests coming. Michael, for example, was recommended to us by Frank, so you see we will follow up on your suggestions as good as possible. As always, we link to most of the topics discussed in the interview in the show notes, so check them out. Also, towards the end of the interview, Michael mentions the increasing impact of athletes using their own platform to call for social justice. He uses the example of the late Kobe Bryant as one of the most influential athletes around the world. Currently, other active athletes like LeBron James, Jalen Brown, George Hill or Andre Iguodala, but also former athletes like Bill Russell, equally make their voices heard during the recent protests. As always, we would like to thank all of our loyal Patreons for supporting us. Kickback is made by Niels Kubis, Jonathan Kleinpass, Matthew Stevenson and me. My name is Christopher Starke. See you next time.